Hey guys, it's Ellie, and this is Classic Mysteries. Today we're going to be reading The Adventure of the Cheap Flat. It's actually the third story in the series Poirot Investigates, which is, I believe, the first series of Poirot stories. So basically, the first one we did was the Western Star episode 2, which was one of the really early ones, and I know the quality is you know, not great. And then the second one we did was Marsden Manor, I think that was episode 7? It's been a minute since I've done, done Agatha Christie, and I'm finally doing it again, so... Yep, The Adventure of the Cheap Flat. So, yeah, with Number Waffle, let's jump right in. The Adventure of the Cheap Flat So far, in the cases which I have recorded, Poirot's investigations have started from the central fact, whether murder or robbery, and have proceeded from thence by a process of logical deduction to the final triumphant unraveling. In the events I am now about to chronicle, a remarkable chain of circumstances led from the apparently trivial incidents which first attracted Poirot's attention to the sinister happenings which completed a most unusual case. I had been spending the evening with an old friend of mine, Gerald Parker. There had been perhaps about half a dozen people there besides my host and myself, and the talk fell, as it was bound to do sooner or later, wherever Parker found himself, on the subject of house hunting in London. Houses and flats were Parker's special hobby. Since the end of the war, he had occupied at least half a dozen different flats in Maisonnettes. No sooner was he settled anywhere than he would light unexpectedly upon a new find, and would forthwith depart bag and baggage. His moves were nearly always accomplished at a slight pe- His moves were nearly always accomplished at a slight pecuniary gain, for he had a shrewd business head, but it was sheer love of the sport that actuated him, and not a desire to make money at it. We listened to Parker for some time, with the respect of the novice for the expert. Then it was our turn, and a perfect babble of tongues was let loose. Finally, the floor was left to Mrs. Robinson, a charming little bride who was there with her husband. I had never met them before, as Robinson was only a recent acquaintance of Parker's. Talking of flats, she said, Have you heard of our piece of luck, Mr. Parker? We've got a flat, at last, in Montague Mansions. Well, said Parker, I always said there are plenty of flats, at a price. Yes, but this isn't at a price. It's dirt cheap. Eighty pounds a year. But Montague Mansions is just off of Knightsbridge, isn't it? Big, handsome building. Or are you talking of a poor relation of the same name, stuck in the slums somewhere? No, it's the Knightsbridge one. That's what makes it so wonderful. Wonderful is the word. It's a blinking miracle. But there must be a catch somewhere. Big premium, I suppose? No premium. No premium. Oh, hold my head, somebody, groaned Parker. But we've got to buy the furniture, continued Mrs. Robinson. Ah, Parker brisked up. I knew there was a catch. For fifty pounds, and it's beautifully furnished. I give it up, said Parker. The present occupants must be lunatics with a taste for philanthropy. Mrs. Robinson was looking a little troubled. A little pucker appeared between her dainty brows. It is queer, isn't it? You don't think that that the, the place is haunted? Never heard of a haunted flat, declared Parker decisively. N no. Mrs. Robinson appeared far from convinced. But there were several things about it all that struck me as, well, queer. For instance, I suggested. Ah, said Parker, our criminal expert's attention is aroused. Unburden yourself to him, Mrs. Robinson. Hastings is a great unraveler of mysteries. I laughed, embarrassed but not wholly displeased with the role thrust upon me. 
Oh, not really queer, Captain Hastings. But when we went to the agents, Stosser and Paul, we hadn't tried them before because they only have the expensive Mayfair flats. But we thought at any rate it would do no harm. Everything they offered us was four and five hundred a year, or else huge premiums. And then, just as we were going, they mentioned that they had a flat at eighty, but that they doubted if it would be any good our going there, because it had been on their books some time, and they had sent so many people to see it, that it was almost sure to be taken, snapped up, as the clerk put it. Only people were so tiresome and not letting them know, and then they went on sending, and people get annoyed at being sent to a place that had, perhaps, been let some time. Mrs. Robinson paused for some much-needed breath, and then continued. We thanked him, and said that we quite understood it would probably be no good, but that we should like an order all the same, just in case. And we went there, straight away in a taxi. For, after all, you never know. Number four was on the second floor, and just as we were waiting for the lift, Elsie Ferguson, she's a friend of mine, Captain Hastings, and they are looking for a flat too, came hurrying down the stairs. Ahead of you for once, my dear, she said, but it's no good, it's already let. That seemed to finish it, but, well, as John said, the place was very cheap, and we could afford to give more, and perhaps if we offered a premium. A horrid thing to do, of course, and I feel quite ashamed of telling you, but you know what flat hunting is. I assured her that I was well aware that in the struggle for house room, the baser side of human nature frequently triumphed over the higher, and that the well-known rule of dog-eat-dog always applied. Oh yeah, dude, real estate? Mm, cutthroat business. <laughs> It's a wild land out there, baby. It's a war zone. You gotta get a flat or you gotta get out, baby. <laughs> Makes it sound like it's just chaos. I mean, it probably is. I've never tried to get a flat in England. So we went up and, would you believe it? The flat wasn't let at all. We were shown over it by the maid and then we saw the mistress and the thing was settled then and there. Immediate possession and 50 pounds for the furniture. We signed the agreement next day and we are to move in tomorrow. Mrs. Robinson paused triumphantly. And what about Mrs. Ferguson? asked Parker. Let's have your deductions, Hastings. Obvious, my dear Watson, I quoted lightly. She went to the wrong flat. Oh, Captain Hastings, how clever of you, cried Mrs. Robinson admiringly. I, I rather wished Poirot had been there. Sometimes I have the feeling that he rather underestimates my capabilities. <laughs> I love how Hastings always trying to prove himself to Poirot. Like, come on. He's just like, oh man, that was so cool. What a cool deduction I just did. Man, if only Poirot had seen that. <laughs> I mean, what would Poirot have said? Like, Poirot would probably have, like, brushed it off as nothing, you know? Like, I don't imagine that Poirot would have been like, a good job. Uh, you're so good at this. Yeah, that's totally his voice. Absolutely. That is a very, very French voice. What are you talking about? I'm so good at accents, okay? Don't, don't tell me that I'm bad at accents because that one was just so good, okay? Don't even try to tell me otherwise. <laughs> oh, goodness. I struggle with French. This is a well-known fact. The whole thing was rather amusing, and I propounded the thing as a mock problem to Poirot on the following morning. He seemed interested and questioned me rather narrowly as to the rents of flats in various localities. A curious story, he said thoughtfully. Excuse me, Hastings. I must take a short stroll. When he returned about an hour later, his eyes were gleaming with a peculiar excitement. He laid his stick on the table and brushed the nap of his hat with his usual tender care before he spoke. It is all well, mon ami, that we have no affairs of moment on hand. We can devote ourselves wholly to the present investigation. What investigation are you talking about? The remarkable cheapness of your friend's Mrs. Robinson's new flat. Poirot, you're not serious! 
I am most serious. Figure to yourself, my friend, that the real rent of those flats is £350. I have just ascertained that from the landlord's agents. And yet this particular flat is being sublet at £80. Why? There must be something wrong with it. Perhaps it is haunted, as Mrs. Robinson suggested. Poirot shook his head in a dissatisfied manner. Then again, how curious it is that her friend tells her the flat is let, and when she goes up, behold, it is not so at all. But surely you agree with me that the other woman must have gone to the wrong flat. That is the only possible solution. You may or may not be right on that point, Hastings. The fact still remains that the numerous other applicants were sent to see it, and yet, in spite of its remarkable cheapness, it was still in the market when Mrs. Robinson arrived. That shows there must be something wrong about it. Mrs. Robinson did not seem to notice anything amiss. Very curious, is it not? Did she impress you as being a truthful woman, Hastings? She was a delightful creature. Evident. Since she renders you incapable of replying to my question, describe her to me, then. Well, she's tall and fair. Her hair is really a beautiful shade of auburn. Always you have had a penchant for auburn hair, murmured Poirot. But continue. Blue eyes and a very nice complexion, and, well, that's all, I think, I concluded lamely. And her husband? Oh, he's, uh, quite a nice fellow. Nothing startling. Dark or fair? I don't know, betwixt and between, and just an ordinary sort of face. Poirot nodded. Yes, there are hundreds of these average men. And, anyway, you bring more sympathy and appreciation to your description of women. Do you know anything about these people? Does Parker know them well? They are just recent acquaintances, I believe. But surely, Poirot, you don't think for an instant. Poirot raised his hand. Tout doucement, mon ami. Have I said that I think anything? All I say is, it is a curious story. And there is nothing to throw light upon it. Except perhaps the lady's name, eh, Hastings? Her name is Stella, I said stiffly, but I don't see... Poirot interrupted me with a tremendous chuckle. Something seemed to be amusing him vastly. And Stella means a star, does it not? Famous. What on earth? And stars give light. Voila! Calm yourself, Hastings. Do not put on that air of injured dignity. Come, we will go to Montague Mansions and make a few inquiries. I accompanied him, nothing loath. The mansions were a handsome block of buildings in excellent repair. A uniformed porter was sunning himself on the threshold, and it was to him that Poirot addressed himself. Pardon, but could you tell me if a Mr. and Mrs. Robinson reside here? The porter was a man of few words, and apparently of a sour or suspicious disposition. He hardly looked at us and grunted out, Number four, second floor. I thank you. Can you tell me how long they've been here? Six months. I started forward in amazement, conscious as I did so of Poirot's malicious grin. Impossible! I cried. You must be making a mistake. Six months. Are, are you sure? The, the lady I mean is tall and fair with reddish gold hair and- That's her, said the porter. Come in the Michelmas quarter they did, just six months ago. He appeared to lose interest in us and retreated slowly up the hall. I followed Poirot outside. On bien, Hastings? My friend demanded slyly. Are you so sure now that delightful women always speak the truth? I did not reply. Poirot had steered his way into Brompton Road before I asked him what he was going to do and where we were going. To the house, Agents Hastings. I have a great desire to have a flat in Montague Mansions. If I am not mistaken, several interesting things will take place there before long. 
we were fortunate on our quest. Number eight on the fourth floor was to be let furnished at ten guineas a week. Poirot promptly took it for a month. Outside on the street again, he silenced my protests. But I make money nowadays. Why should I not indulge a whim? By the way, Hastings, have you a revolver? Yes, somewhere, I answered, slightly thrilled. Do you think that you will need it? It is quite possible. The idea pleases you, I see. Always the spectacular and romantic appeals to you. The following day saw us installed in our temporary home. The flat was pleasantly furnished. It occupied the same position in the building as that of the Robinsons, but was two floors higher. The day after our installation was a Sunday. In the afternoon, Poirot left the front door ajar and summoned me hastily as a bang reverberated from somewhere below. Look over the banisters. Are those your friends? Do not let them see you. I craned my neck over the staircase. That's them, I declared in an ungrammatical whisper. Good. Wait a while. About a half an hour later, a young woman emerged in brilliant and varied clothing. With a sigh of satisfaction, Poirot tiptoed back into the flat. Sissa, after the master and mistress, the maid, the flat should now be empty. What are we going to do? I asked uneasily. Poirot had trotted briskly into the scullery and was hauling at the rope of the coal lift. We are about to descend after the method of the dustbins, he explained cheerfully. No one will observe us. The Sunday concert, the Sunday afternoon out, and finally the Sunday nap after the Sunday dinner of England, all of these will distract attention from the doings of Hercule Poirot. Come, my friend. He stepped into the rough wooden contrivance, and I followed him gingerly. Are we going to break into the flat? I asked dubiously. Poirot's answer was not too reassuring. Not precisely today, he replied. Pulling on the rope, we descended slowly until we reached the second floor. Poirot uttered an exclamation of satisfaction as he perceived that the wooden door into the scullery was open. You observe, never do they bolt these doors in the daytime, and yet anyone could mount or descend as we have done. At night, yes, though not always then, it is against that that we are going to make provision. He had drawn some tools from his pocket as he spoke, and at once set deftly to work, his object being to arrange the bolt so that it could be pulled back from the lift. The operation only occupied about three minutes. Then Poirot returned the tools to his pocket, and we reascended once more to our own domain. Ah, uh, yes, breaking and entering. <laughs> How very legal. <laughs> I don't know much about UK law. I mean, I'm sure it's relatively similar to American law, at least on some of the more basic levels, like breaking and entering into a house. I imagine that's illegal. <laughs> on Monday, Poirot was out all day, but when he returned in the evening, he flung himself into his chair with a sigh of satisfaction. Hastings, shall I recount to you a little history? A story after your own heart, and which will remind you of your favorite cinema. Go ahead, I laughed. I presume that this is a true story, not one of your efforts of fancy. It is true enough. Inspector Jap of Scotland Yard will vouch for its accuracy, since it was through his kind offices that it came to my ears. Listen, Hastings, a little over six months ago, some important naval plans were stolen from an American government department. They showed the position of some of the most important harbor defenses, and would be worth a considerable sum to any foreign government, that of Japan, for example. Suspicion fell upon a young man named Luigi Valdarno, an Italian man by birth, who was employed in a minor capacity by the department and who was missing at the same time as the papers. Whether Luigi Valdarno was the thief or not, he was found two days later on the east side in New York, shot dead. The papers were not on him. 
Now, for some time past, Luigi Valdarno has been going out with a Miss Elsa Hart, a young concert singer who had recently appeared and who lived with a brother in an apartment in Washington. Nothing was known of the antecedents of Miss Elsa Hart, and she disappeared suddenly about the time of Valdarno's death. There are reasons for believing that she was in reality an accomplished international spy who has done much nefarious work under various aliases. The American Secret Service, whilst doing their best to trace her, also kept an eye upon certain insignificant Japanese gentlemen living in Washington. They felt pretty certain that, when Elsa Hart had covered her tracks sufficiently, she would approach the gentleman in question. One of them left suddenly for England a fortnight ago. On the face of it, therefore, it would seem that Elsa Hart is in England. Poirot paused and then added softly, The official description of Elsa Hart is Height 5 foot 7, eyes blue, hair auburn, fair complexion, nose straight, with no special distinguishing marks. Mrs. Robinson! I gasped. Well, there is a chance of it, anyhow, amended Poirot. Also, I learned that a swarthy man, a foreigner of some kind, was inquiring about the occupants of number four this morning. Therefore, mon ami, I fear that you must forswear your beauty sleep tonight and join me in my all-night vigil in the flat below, armed with that excellent revolver of yours. Rather, I cried with enthusiasm, when shall we start? That's the spirit. Yeah, go get your girlfriend. I, I mean, <clears throat> Mrs. Robinson, what? <laughs> Bring your gun. Let's shoot some people in their own house late at night. Yeah. Who cares about the law when there's international politics involved? Yeah. The hour of midnight is both solemn and suitable, I fancy. Nothing is likely to occur before then. At twelve o'clock precisely, we crept cautiously into the coal lift and lowered ourselves to the second floor. Under Poirot's manipulation, the wooden door quickly swung inwards, and we climbed into the flat. From the scullery, we passed into the kitchen where we established ourselves comfortably in two chairs with the door into the hall ajar. Now we have but to wait, said Poirot contentedly, closing his eyes. Okay, imagine you just finished participating in some suspicious international affairs activities, as one does, and then you come home, you're looking forward to a good night's sleep, and then you stop because there are two random dudes sitting in your kitchen. I wouldn't be able to sleep very well after that. <laughs> Although I assume she's not going to be sleeping at all because she might be under arrest. Who knows? To me, the waiting appeared endless. I was terrified of going to sleep. Just when it seemed to me that I'd been there about eight hours, and had, as I found out afterwards, in reality been exactly one hour and twenty minutes, a faint scratching sound came to my ears. Poirot's hand touched mine. I rose, and together we moved carefully in the direction of the hall. The noise came from there. Poirot placed his lips to my ear. Outside the front door, they are cutting out the lock. When I give the word, not before, fall upon him from behind and hold him fast. Be careful, he will have a knife. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Words of wisdom. Presently, there was a rending sound, and a little circle of light appeared through the door. It was extinguished immediately, and then the door was slowly opened. Poirot and I flattened ourselves against the wall. I heard a man's breathing as he passed us. Then he flashed on his torch, and as he did so, Poirot hissed in my ear. Allez. And that, my friends, is the end of the episode. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. It's refreshing to get back into some Agatha Christie. This is a really good beginning. And, um, yeah, like, seriously, the last time that I did Agatha Christie was episode 7. What the heck? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, so yeah, it's it's been a very thick minute since I've done any Agatha Christie, so it's kind of cool to revisit it, you know? The story's really interesting, and I enjoy how <laughs> how Hastings just brings up this thing he learned about in passing. He's like, oh yeah, Poirot, you know, this is saying about this like lady that I met at some party. She's talking about some really cheap flat she got. And then Poirot goes out, looks into the rental costs of the area, buys a flat in the same building as them, and then instigates an entire investigation. Just because Hastings was like, oh yeah, something kind of weird happened to me at this party. Uh, it was kind of strange, <laughs> you know? And then I can imagine Poirot just responded to him with, a strange incident, do you say? Oh. <laughs> so yeah, anyways, I know I left you guys on a cliffhanger, but we'll finish off next week. It looks like there will be a bunch of action because right now they're currently in the process of spooking some guy with a knife in a dark flat that he is breaking into. Uh, so currently there are three people in quote-unquote Mrs. Robinson's flat, and none of them are supposed to be there. <laughs> So yeah, hopefully she doesn't come home and see a bunch of strangers chilling out in her kitchen. You know, that'd be kind of strange. Anyways, uh, yeah, that was a great episode. And like I said, it, it's it's good to be reading some Agatha Christie. So yeah, just a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I have an email. If you ever wanted to send me feedback or comments or recommendations for what I should read on the podcast, your favorite mystery books, your favorite mystery puzzles, stuff like that, send it all to classicmysteriespod at gmail.com. I think it would be cool if you guys would let me know what I should read, you know? But yeah, secondly, if you're on any podcast app or device or website, why would you go on a website? <laughs> um, then I would appreciate it if you would engage with the podcast. On most podcast platforms, there's some way to heart or follow or like or leave a review, specifically on Apple Podcasts. Um, so yeah, if you would do that, I would really appreciate it because, dude, these are great stories. Like, these are really good stories, and I feel like more people should know about them. Like, obviously, Sherlock Holmes is not a little-known underground kind of mystery character. Neither is uh, Poirot. But their stories are really good. And I think that more people should read the originals, you know? Like, these books are over a century old. They're so freaking ancient. It still blows my mind. And yet, here we are still reading them in 2022, you know? I think that's pretty cool. Anyways, so, yeah. Last thing, there are those two links in the show notes that I mention every week. And one is just to directly donate to me via PayPal. And the second one is to become my patron. So if you want to check out that page, I would appreciate that as well. I had an amazing week, and I hope that you guys do too. So, anyways, I'll see you guys next Monday. Bye.